Thank you, Bill. Please allow me to add my warm welcome to all those that have already been offered to you this morning, whether you're here in person or you're worshiping with us at home. It is good to be together with you today as we continue in the summer sermon series that we are looking at, how an encounter with Jesus changes life. Uh, to get started this morning, I want to begin by asking a couple of questions, and I would love for you to respond with a raising of your hands. Got it? You ready? Here we go. Question number one. How many of you have, uh, have ever struggled with doubt? Oh, good. I see a lot of hands. I'm not surprised. The second question, listen carefully, please. How many of you have never struggled with doubt about anything you believe since becoming a Christian? All right. I'm glad nobody raised their hand because I had no idea how I was going to respond to you. Uh, <laughs> The, the truth is, I think, that though we don't like to talk about it, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with God, we all struggle, I think, with doubts at time. And there are many, many causes for why we have these doubts. Some, for example, are caused by the questions that we have in our lives that we just can't get answers for. Sometimes I think uh, life can seem unfair. Sometimes I think we have hurts and pains and surprises that just don't make any sense to us. And sometimes, this is one I've been guilty of, uh, we pray about something to God, but he fails to intervene according to our timetable or in the anticipated method that we expected him to respond, and so we doubt. And then I think sometimes every believer at times feels uh, an insecurity about God's love or God's forgiveness in our lives. And the bottom line is, if you're not hearing me clearly this morning, is I think we all have doubts in our lives. And whatever the causes of those doubts, I hope you were able to see you're not alone, okay? Did you see how many hands were raised when I asked the first question? Let me also interject here that in the Bible, there are pages of accounts of people of God who struggled with doubts. Abraham, for example, was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him. You remember the story? He proclaimed, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and by the way, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Remember Abraham's response? It's presented in uh, Genesis 17, 17. Here's what it said. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Moses, too, he had his doubts. We studied the book of Exodus not so long ago. You may remember his response when God called him out and said, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to free my people from the people of Egypt. According to Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Perhaps one of the most profound ones, for example, for me this week was found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, because I often see the Apostle Paul kind of flying around on a cape, a super kind of saint. But um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we find the Apostle Paul and his ministry team, they're, they're having doubts and they're going through a point in their life where he writes these words. Listen how powerful they are. Verse 8, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. And of course, there's Thomas, who we're going to look at today, one of Jesus' disciples, so well known for his doubts that his nickname to this day is Doubting Thomas. And, and, and I don't know about you guys, but I just love how real the Bible is. Uh, think about it. If the Bible were a work of man, 
the writers would cover up all the flaws of God's followers, especially his disciples. They, they'd portray themselves as always faithful, wouldn't they? They wouldn't even think about recording the fact that they had these prideful and arguments among themselves. They, they, they would always show themselves to be bold and fearless, and they would have left no doubt Peter's denial and the Jesus' uh, disciples' abandonment of him in the final hours there. And they would never, I think, represent it themselves, as we'll see today in the passages we're looking at, as having doubts. But the Bible is indeed very real. It is the word of God. It portrays the disciples' warts and all. And I don't know about you, but I really, really appreciate that. With these thoughts in mind, we're ready to jump into our text. If you haven't already done so, would you please turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. As you're doing that, let me try to provide some context for the text that we're looking at here today. The disciples have just witnessed the horrible, humiliating death of Jesus Christ, the one who they fully believed and confessed to be their Messiah. And during all this, uh, the, all this horrible time, they stood helplessly uh, and, and, and on the side, and, and they were, Jesus was actually betrayed by one of them, Judas, who was one of the most notorious traitors in history. After witnessing how uh, the, uh, the terrible, I would say, lopsided miscarriages of justice carried out against Jesus in the dead of the night. And in just a few hours, the Jewish religious leaders, if you remember, had Jesus tried. They had him convicted by both the Jewish uh, courts and the Roman authorities. They had to be thinking that if, if they could do this to Jesus who was as popular with the crowds as he was, and he did nothing but improve the lives of those he came in contact with and teach, then, then the, surely they must have thought, uh, you know, they're going to round up all of Jesus' followers and they're going to snuff out this movement. And so filled with uncertainty, filled with fear, in our opening of our text today, we find the disciples are huddled together. They're hiding behind locked doors. And of course, we know from Scripture, even if you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John chapter 20, you'll see that they've been hearing stories and testimony. Jesus is alive. But for whatever reason, none of the disciples believed that Jesus had risen from the dead until they saw him face to face. Thomas, if you look at verse 24, this is where we're going to start here, was not present when Jesus came through the locked doors, and he proved to his disciples, showing them his wounds, that he was indeed alive. And, uh, and when Thomas came to the disciples later, um, they, they said, according to verse 25, and the disciples were saying, hey, Jesus is alive. Look at his comment, perhaps one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails, and both my fingers are into the marks of those nails, and place my hand into his side, he says, I will never, never believe. It's interesting, the Greek verb told in verse 25, when the disciples told them Jesus was alive, that was an active voice. In other words, that means the disciples kept on saying, Thomas, we've seen the Lord is alive. Likely, that also means that Thomas was repeatedly saying, I won't believe it until I see it myself, right? I, I wonder, have you ever been in one of those kind of merry-go-round arguments I see some of you smiling, so that tells me this morning with the person right next to you, right? You had one of these mirrors. I'm not trying to be smart or stir up trouble, but I think we all know those, the feelings that are happening in one of these merry-go-round arguments. And, and, and that's what's going on here, I think, 
in this encounter with Thomas and the disciples. And because of this moment in history, Thomas has been given the forever nickname Doubting Thomas, which, by the way, I think, I hope the translators understand, I said I should have thought this out, I think is a bad rap, okay? Imagine how horrible it would be for you or for me if the worst or the weakest moment in your life you earned a nickname that stuck with you for the rest of your days. Can you imagine that? Uh, when I was 14 years old, I was working as a busboy in a Rustler Steakhouse. I don't even know if they still exist in New Jersey. Young and immature, I found that I just couldn't take it. The fast-paced working environment, uh, the periods of time that I had to be on my feet, bending over tables all day, lifting those heavy tubs, um, rude customers, and being undervalued by both and underappreciated by the staff themselves. And don't even get me started on some of those tables that people left. I mean, they were disgusting, right? And I had to clean them quickly and thoroughly and often honestly didn't get a tip, okay? So one day I just quit. I couldn't take it anymore. Without calling in, I just didn't show up. Admittedly, one, not one of my finest moments in life. But what if from the rest of my life, when it came to the employment that I was seeking, I was forever known as quitting Milt. That would be horrible, wouldn't it? And yet, that's what I see happening here to Thomas. The bottom line as I look at this text is Thomas is uncertain. He has questions. And, and who really can blame him? His world, just like the rest of Jesus' disciples, has been rocked, okay? And so I'm guessing... He's probably spent the last few days pulling all the broken pieces in his life back together, trying to figure out what is going to be my next step. In fact, he might have already moved on with his life. Why else, I think, I wonder, is he out and about when the rest of the disciples are locked behind closed doors? And then all of a sudden, he comes together with them, and everybody's saying, Thomas, Jesus is alive. And all Thomas could say flat out at that point, unless I see it, for my own self, I won't believe, okay? With these thoughts in mind, I want to take a moment as a foundation here to give you a few reasons as I studied this text why I believe Thomas should be remembered and appreciated with a little more respect than we often, especially more than doubting Thomas, okay? If you're taking notes, here's the first point. Reason number one, Thomas possessed excellent leadership qualities. Thomas possessed excellent leadership qualities qualities. For example, the two examples in the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, two days after Jesus heard that Lazarus, his dear friend, was ill, he turned to his disciples and said, hey, we're going to Bethany where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live. Jesus' disciples, knowing that the Jews in Bethany hated Jesus, they were seeking to kill him, they tried everything they could to talk him out of it. Not Thomas. In contrast, according to verse 16, he said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him, okay? Not a doubter, okay? An enthusiastic, courageous kind of person, loyalty all over the place. He's saying, look, if we die with Jesus, we die with Jesus. And he's rallying all the other disciples to be willing to do the same. And, and I believe that's the type of leadership that Jesus was seeking in all of his disciples. Another example of Thomas's leadership and loyalty, I believe, is presented in John 14. Here we find the disciples are deeply troubled. They're deeply troubled for two reasons, actually three. Jesus has just announced 
that one of them has, is going to be a traitor. He also told Peter at this time, oh, by the way, you're going to deny me three times. But the biggest blow to the disciples at this time was the realization that very shortly Jesus was going to be leaving them. And so he speaks to their hearts in John chapter 14, 1 through 4, very familiar passage, often honestly read at funerals. Here's what he said. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. Let me remind you here that at this point, the disciples, I think, are still convinced that Jesus is setting up a physical kingdom. He's going to be their Messiah. He's going to overthrow Rome. Everything's going to be peachy, okay? They don't actually know what Jesus is talking about here. They have no idea where he's going, in my opinion, or how they're going to get there. That's what's going on here. So I think what we have here in this scenario is, uh, is you've got a meeting of people, and we've all been there. Several people are sitting there, and one person's leading, and they're explaining something that they think everybody understands. You ever been there? But then you realize likely that somebody in the room, everyone in the room, including you, you have no idea what he or she is talking about. But nobody wants to say something for fear you're going to look foolish, right? Am I the only one that's ever been in that situation? And then suddenly, good old Thomas, right, speaks out in verse 5 saying, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Here's a guy with the guts to speak out because I believe Thomas wants to be on the same page with Jesus. I believe he wants to follow Jesus wherever he goes. It speaks of a deliberateness. It speaks of a thoughtfulness. It speaks of a commitment to Jesus. Thomas was a very loyal uh, leader among his disciples. Reason number two, if you're taking notes, I believe Thomas should be remembered and appreciated with more respect. Thomas's doubts align with what the other disciples experienced. We heard earlier, Bill, read the scripture reading. Jesus has already appeared to the other 10 disciples after his resurrection. Having seen his wounds, they, it says they, they were glad and they believe. So I believe as we look at verse 25, Thomas is only asking. He could have done it a lot more, uh, um, I guess, calmer, you know, less threatening. Thomas is asking in verse 25, for what the other disciples has already seen and experienced. And that brings me to reason number three, that Thomas should be remembered and appreciated with more respect. Thomas isn't the only disciple who doubted. And, and I saw a lot of passages that I've read before and things that popped out when I was preparing this. Maybe you'll feel the same way. Turn over to chapter 28 of, 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 of Matthew. Keep a finger here, Matthew 28 known as the Great Commission, right? Jesus is ascending back into heaven. He's about to commission his disciples to go into all the world and make disciples. But I want you to look carefully with me what it says about the disciples here in verses 16 and 17. You got it? Here's what it says, verse 16. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted him. Of course, they would eventually be fully convinced and believe and be faithful to the commission God was giving them here. 
But apparently some doubts and concerns were still lingering in the minds of these 11 disciples. And, and I don't know about you, but when I see a passage like this, I'm so encouraged for, I don't know, again, about you, but I have those moments in my life where I feel so close to the Lord. I mean, I'm worshiping him and I'm serving him and, and I, I feel like he's at work in my life, in my ministry, in my heart. I feel such a confidence in who Christ is and who I am in him. And, and sometimes in that very same week, even in that very same day, sometimes in that very same hour, and I've really experienced that a lot over the last several weeks, I can have moments where I'm wondering, Lord, where are you? Our, our, our doubts about what are you doing in my life right now? I can't see it. I can't sense it. You see, like an uninvited dinner guest, doubts show up at the most inopportune time, especially among believers. Reason number four that I believe Thomas should be remembered and appreciated with more respect is the way Jesus responds to him. Jesus' response to Thomas. It's so beautiful. Turn back to John chapter 20 and look at verses 26 and 27. Eight days later, it says, the following Sunday of the week, right? His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He's, he's repeated that, I forget how many times now, in his encounters with his disciples. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I want you to see here how tenderly Jesus drew near to Thomas and his doubts. He had every right to severely rebuke Thomas. He could have completely ignored his request. But no, Jesus appears to him, and we see this tender drawing. And in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, Jesus, you see, offers Thomas the opportunity to do what he said he needed in order to believe. Did you see that? And by the way, if you look at this text in the original Greek, nowhere in any of this narrative do you see the Greek word doubt appear. In fact, verse 17, 27 is the main emphasis here. A literal translation says, become not unbelieving, but believing. Simply stated, do not disbelieve anymore, Thomas, but believe. And so this is a forthright challenge, a loving forthright challenge by Jesus Christ to Thomas to personally commit and believe that he is arisen. And look at Thomas, Thomas's response in verse 28. I love it. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. This, brothers and sisters, is one of the strongest statements on the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ in the entire New Testament. And here's the thing. This declaration is so much more than a doctrinal statement. This is Thomas's personal testimony. He says, my Lord and my God. To say Jesus is your Lord is to say that he is in sovereign control, unlimited jurisdiction over all of creation, including my heart and your heart. And Thomas is clearly recognizing here the fact that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead, being the ultimate proof that he is indeed God. And interestingly... I see in this story, it shows us that if we're to overcome our doubts, we, like Thomas, must rest upon the reality of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main takeaway I see in this. And that, my friends, is why I think it's not fair that Thomas is known throughout history as Doubting Thomas. It's interesting, for although Thomas is the last of the 11 disciples, I think, to fully comprehend and believe 
Don't miss this. He is the first to actually declare Jesus God. And here's another thing that I believe is worth noting here. As you look at the Gospel of John, the declaration that Jesus, uh, about Jesus by Thomas is what John has been driving at throughout this Gospel. To see what I mean, look at the very opening chapter of John chapter 1, looking at verses 1 and 14. In the beginning, John writes, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Look at the last two verses of the passage we're looking at here in John 20, verse 30 and 31. Notice how he explains the very specific reason that he's written his gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And thus Thomas's declaration here of my Lord and my God is the crowning climax of John's gospel. It's the desire of John that every reader come to that same conclusion and be able to say, Jesus is my Lord and he is my God. Reading on in verse 29, kind of here in a mixture of uh, a mild rebuke and a prediction and a blessing, look at what Jesus goes on to say to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So who is Jesus talking about here in the second half of this verse? Well, for starters, I would submit to you he's talking about us. He's talking about all the followers of Jesus Christ through all the generation over all the world who without the help of a visible manifestation of the resurrected Jesus who have believed and who have put their trust in him. I love the Apostle Peter. Another verse that I know I've read hundreds of times, but it popped out to me having studied this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we find Peter acknowledging this blessing and this prediction of Jesus. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Even so... I want to say something very clear here. I don't believe, as we look at this text, that God is seeking for us to have a blind, unthinking kind of faith. Because as I read through the Gospel of John over the last several weeks, you quickly see that the invitation stands from beginning of the book to the end. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. A consistent posture, a consistent invitation throughout the book is come and see who this Jesus is. And that being noted... I'm guessing there might even be some people here today who, like Thomas, you're still wrestling through the doubts you have about Jesus, about his life, about his resurrection, and you haven't yet put your trust in him. And here's the thing I see, that if your doubts lead to questions and your questions lead to answers and your answers are accepted, that doubt has done a good work. And so I'm praying if there's anyone here that you'll keep digging, you'll keep seeking. We see in the biblical narrative that Thomas's doubts drove him to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was transformed. In fact, I had not really done a lot of research on Thomas, but according to early traditions, it tells us that he went to Persia and later to India, preaching the gospel, leading people to Christ, planting churches, 
Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that in India, Thomas so angered the Reagan, the Reagan, the radical pagan priests uh, as he spread the gospel that they tortured him, they ran him through with spears, and they threw him into an oven of fire. And as a result, if you talk to almost any Indian Christian today, Thomas is remembered in their nation as a hero of the faith, not a doubter. And that, my morning, that, that's my desire this morning. That's my challenge to all of us to remember him in the same way as a man who put his faith in Christ and whose life was transformed. Now, like any good sermon, I think we come now to the point and say, okay, it's been great. Thank you for this academic time, Milt, about uh, why, why Thomas should be respected. But what difference? This is where we start thinking about how this impacts our lives. What difference should Thomas's encounter with Jesus make in our lives today? And I have four takeaways for us to think about and pray about. And really, it's got a personal nature and a corporate nature to what I want to share as a pastor from my heart today. First, I believe Thomas shows us that doubt is not necessarily the same thing as unbelief. Thomas shows us, his example here, that doubt is not necessarily the same thing as unbelief. Think about it this way. Doubt is a matter of the mind. We don't understand what God is doing or why. Where I think unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe or we obey what, or refuse to obey what God tells us to do. Let me give you, for example... A doubt may mean that I'm still wanting more information. I'm still praying about something. I'm still researching. I'm still trying to understand what God says in his word. On the other side of that, an unbelief says, I won't believe even if you, even if you give me that information. In fact, I'm not even going to search for that information. So if you're a Christian today and you're struggling with doubting, I would encourage you, don't stop in your doubting. Let your doubt deepen your faith as you prayerfully continue researching God's word for answers. Someone said this to me earlier in the week. I believe it was Pastor Mike, actually. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Denial is. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Denial is. So keep searching. The second takeaway, we shouldn't be afraid to express our doubts and should allow others to do the same. We should not be afraid as believers in Jesus Christ to express our doubts and allow others to do the same. You see, to the person who is sincerely seeking truth and is open to God's leading, doubts don't have to be considered an unnecessary weakness. Of course, the first run to is always God. We always want to run to God. But I want us to also see by the example of Thomas here that we also have the opportunity to talk with and work through our doubts with trusted believers. Sharing our doubts with other Christian uh, believers in our community here at Chantilly Bible Church is important because I know from personal experience that whenever we keep those doubts without working through them, they're surely going to grow stronger and darker and become more intense strongholds. And that's why at Chantilly Bible Church is one of the pastors here I believe with all my heart we need to learn to extend the grace to one another so that we feel a comfort and a peace about sharing the things that we are struggling with, our doubts. Again, another passage I've never seen, Jude 22, look at the command, to have mercy on those who doubt, to have mercy on. It's so easy, isn't it, to judge, condemn, look down on doubters as if they're second-rate Christians, 
but I believe to have mercy is just the opposite. It's to be there for them. It's to be willing to listen, not only to their lips, but also to their heart, and then to encourage them and embolden them with the truth of God's word to help them work through the doubts and the fears and the lies that they're believing. And let me just say this to parents. I want to encourage you not to be surprised or alarmed if your kids come to you with tough questions or doubts about their faith. That is not the time to panic. It's a time to pray. It's a time to process with them. Be glad that your children are learning how to think for themselves and to make their faith their own. Be merciful to them, even as we see. And that brings me to the third takeaway from Thomas's encounter. Again, very corporate here. Christian friends, the church, and the Christian home should be the safest place in the world to ask hard questions. Christian friends, our church, and the Christian home should be the safest place to ask hard questions. Notice how in our biblical text, Thomas never really fell away from community. And likewise, if you're here today and you're having doubts, that is not the time, dear brother or sister in Christ, to stop going to church or to avoid your Christian friends. On the contrary, that is the time you lean in on them all the more. And if you are a Christian and part of our church and your friends come to you with their doubts, that is also not the time to push them away or to avoid them. Rather, it's the time that we embrace them with all and all the more that we can. Okay? The Christian church, our friends, should be the safest place. And finally, the fourth, pretty evident, the most important here, I think, be sure to go to Jesus with your doubts. Be sure to go to Jesus with your doubt. I've already said this somewhat in the text of what I've shared here, but I, I want to emphasize again as we end up our time here in the Word. Thomas was really only looking for one thing. He wanted to see Jesus. And likewise, in the moment of the greatest doubts we have, we need the same thing. We need to see Jesus. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And one of my favorite stories in the scripture, and one that I've often related to in my life, and I think it's very appropriate to close with, is the story about a desperate father who brought his demonic son to be healed by Jesus. You remember that story? Uh, they had been through years of pain and agony, and the father was at his wit's end, and he asked Jesus if he would heal him, and Jesus responded by saying, all things, remember this, are possible, for those who believe. Remember what the father's response was? Immediately said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that, dear friends, is what uh, I believe is a great example for us uh, when we need uh, help with our, our doubts, when, when we are struggling, just like this man. I believe the place to start is to tell Jesus that we're struggling and allow him to listen carefully to his word and allow him to work. For whatever the source of our doubts, I believe the solution is the same, as I mentioned earlier, to come back to the basic fact of the bodily victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then even though we may not understand everything with Thomas, we can still bow and acknowledge, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for this wonderful narrative in your word. I'm so grateful for uh, how clearly you spell out things and, and are not afraid, Lord, to show the weaknesses and the challenges that exist among those who believe in you. 
I thank you, Father, that you are indeed a good God and that you are that refuge, that we can run to you and we can cast our cares upon you, our burdens, and know that you hear and that you, Lord, there's nothing too big for you to work through with us. I pray for anyone here who has not yet uh, come to know you. They're still wrestling through the doubts they have about who Jesus is, about his death, his burial, and resurrection. I do pray, Lord, that, they might, that you might open their eyes and allow them to see their need for Jesus and that they might place their trust in you. Again, we thank you for this time, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.